Would you describe your life a life of balance? Think about that just for a moment. Would you say you live a balanced life? And I, you could probably ask 10 different people what that means, and you'll get 10 different answers. Maybe some of you are thinking of your balanced diet, that you get fruits and vegetables and meats and, you know, remember that old school food pyramid where it was really sad because sugar was that little piece at the top and then at the bottom was all the boring stuff. But would you describe your life as one of balance or one of extremes? Where one day you're doing really, really well. You feel like you're walking with the Lord. You feel like you're hearing his voice. He's guiding you. But the next day, you're wondering where he's at. This chapter here, as Paul begins to close the book of Romans, we're going to hear him draw the church back to a place of balance. And it's something that we desperately need. The definition of balance is an even distribution of weight, enabling someone or something to remain upright and steady. It's probably demonstrated clearly on a tightrope, if any of you have been to the circus. I don't know if they still have those. But if you remember uh, your time at the circus, you remember those, I don't know what they're called, I don't think carnies is the appropriate term, but you remember those circus performers and they would walk that tightrope uh, above, uh, suspended above the crowd. And they would do their best to balance as they walked across that, that tightrope. What does it be, mean to be balanced in our walk? What does it mean to love others in a way that's balanced? It's also a term that's used in sailing. It's the ability of a boat to stay on course without adjustment of the rudder. To keep going in the right direction. To head towards your destination without veering to the left or the right. Balance here, as we discussed it this morning, we're speaking of balance specifically in relation to the truth in the instruction of God's word. Because if you would for a moment picture a straight line. Just right across this straight stage. And imagine that line is God's living word, his instruction to us. As you recall in Romans chapter 1 through 11, Paul's been sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. That both Jew and, and Gentile, has, we've been disobedient to God. God has had a perfect plan for his creation and that plan and that fellowship has been broken by sin and only Jesus Christ can cover that sin. Only Jesus Christ offers forgiveness. Only Jesus can, can bridge that gulf between sinful man and a perfectly righteous God. But then in chapter 12, Paul said, now in light of that, present yourselves as living sacrifices. And he's been answering that question, well, what in the world does it mean to be a living sacrifice? It seems like two words that don't fit together. A sacrifice is something that is killed. So what does it mean to be alive and dead or dead and alive? And that's what Paul has been discussing. What does it mean to surrender our lives to Christ, to trust him? to walk with him, to die to ourselves daily and be obedient to his leading. What does it mean to walk that straight line and not go above it or go below it? How do I balance this sound, this mic here? It's funny, I look at Alan like it's his fault, but it's probably mine. So picture that straight line for a moment. What you see in churches across the United States today, you see churches that either err above it where they add to God's word. They make things mandatory that God's word is never made mandatory. They make rules and regulations that are based in tradition and not based in God's word. We call that legalism, right? They set up hoops for people to jump through, and oftentimes the leadership can't even jump through those hoops themselves. That's living above the line. 
Or you look at in some faith communities, and they live below the line, as if God has no standards, as if anything goes. Even the truth of God's word is up for debate. We can call that license, we can call that liberty, but it's not the liberty that we see in Scripture. It's the liberty to really define God's word in any way that we see fit, to take things out that we don't think belong, to take things out that we feel uncomfortable with. But to err on either side of that line is to still err. It's to still miss God's best. If you remember in the Garden of Eden... When the serpent came and tempted Eve. And he said, if you will eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will become like God. And if you remember what Eve said to the serpent. She said, well, no, God told us that we should not touch the fruit. And we should not eat of the fruit, or we will die. Did God ever say not to touch it? No, she was adding to God's word. Just as the Pharisees, Jesus' accusation against them, he said, they tie up heavy and cumbersome loads and put them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. That's legalism. That's frustration. But then in the same same mistake, Paul tells us in Romans that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So here's what I'm saying. Deuteronomy 4.2, you shall not add to the word which I command you, nor take from it that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you. What does it mean to live in balance? That's what Paul is pulling the church into. Because to live in balance, to live in unity is to protect our witness. To stay true to the word of God is to glorify God. To add to it or to subtract from it is to take away from his glory. To tell an incorrect story about who he is. Now in chapter 14, Paul explained the importance of maintaining unity within the body of Christ. How to maintain unity in the face of disagreements with one another. How do we remain singularly focused on our call, that great commission to go out into the world and make disciples? How well do you think we're doing at that? If you look out over the condition of the church in the United States today, how well are we fulfilling the great commission? How effective are we at remaining unified as one body? I'm not just talking about here at Calvary Central. I'm talking about specifically the American church today. Would you say that we are succeeding in having one mind and one body? So why is that? I think the enemy is having a lot of success today in dividing and exploiting our diversity See, here Paul, think about his audience for a moment. He's writing to a church that is made up of two groups that have very different backgrounds, very different faith experiences, very different understandings of who God is. But both of these groups heard the gospel and they believed, so they are unified under the name of Jesus Christ, but they are still carrying a lot of that baggage into this new body known as the church of Jesus Christ. So he's dealing with these two different cultures and their different backgrounds are causing tension within the church. The Gentiles are former pagans and the Jewish people are former Jews. And the Jews, they have very different traditions, they have very different rules, but the enemy is using their differences to exploit and cause contention. And that's exactly what the enemy is doing today. 
He uses our differences to divide. The father of lies, he's had too much success in dividing the body of Christ. And what can we do about it as men and women who love Jesus? Because what we're going to see today is that our unity Our ability to be so different with different backgrounds and different upbringings and different uh, traditions and different convictions, but our ability to come together and say we are one body under the name of Jesus Christ, that glorifies God. That's what's at stake here, the glory of God. And we'll see Paul explain that in chapter 15. And let me try to diagnose the problem real quick before we get into verse 1. I think oftentimes we don't know what to fight for. We don't know which hills to die on. We know because God's word tells us That the gospel will and has been under attack. So we know that we're supposed to contend for the faith, but we don't always, we can't always distinguish between fundamental gospel truths and issues of personal preference. So we often have our guns drawn, ready to do battle, but what happens when you take a soldier who has never been trained and you put him on the battlefield? He becomes a danger to himself and a danger to those around him. And that's what I see in the body of Christ. There is a lot of friendly fire. There is a lot of people attacking other believers and they lack patience and they lack grace. So again, Paul wants us to be trained. He wants us to understand that we are all at different places in our walk. He wants us to understand the difference between open-handed issues and closed-handed issues. The difference between disputable things and issues that have to be settled within our hearts. Jesus Christ is the only way to God. Can we agree on that? That God's word is inerrant. There is no errors in it. Can we agree on that? Should there be drums in worship? What if someone came to you and said, no, that's not honoring God? Could you look at them and say, I disagree with you, brother, but you're still my brother? I hope. Oh, man, you can only wear a tux to church. (laughs) Can we agree? Hey, if you do that to the Lord, awesome. That was my grandpa. You guys might remember, some of you may remember him. He wanted to wear a suit and tie to church every Sunday morning. And it was a little out of place when he started attending here. But it didn't make him feel uncomfortable because he wasn't doing it for us. He was doing it for the Lord. And that's what we're going to see this morning. That some of us have different convictions and that's okay. That makes the diversity in the body of Christ beautiful. But can we come together around the main things and keep them the main things? And so Paul in Romans 15 verse 1, he kind of summarizes everything he said in verse, or chapter 14. He says, we then who are strong ought to bear with the scruples of the weak. That word scruples, it means convictions. We ought to bear with the convictions of the weak and not to please ourselves. If I can just summarize this morning's teaching in four words, not to please ourselves. That is so countercultural that we live for one another and we ultimately live for Jesus. We do not see ourselves more highly than we ought But like Jesus, we come and we serve. So what does Paul mean? That those who are strong ought to be patient and bear with the convictions of the weak. Now, when you think of someone who's strong in the faith, how would you describe them? What are their qualities? When you think of someone and you're like, man, their faith is strong. Would you say there's someone... who has the most rigid of rules. 
They wake up at four in the morning, every morning, and they study God's word for three hours. And then they pray for another two hours. And then they fast all day. And then they finish the evening off praying some more. Is that someone who's strong in the faith? Is it someone who has carefully set up rules for themselves? Is it the person with the most rules? Are they the ones who are strong in the faith? And are the ones who are are weak, are they the ones who don't pray enough? Well, we'll get to that in a second. But what does it mean to be strong? Is it the one who's the most spiritually dramatic? Is it the one who casts out demons? Heals the sick, raises the dead. Is it the most dynamic speakers among us? What does it mean to be strong in the faith? Well, let's look to what Paul is saying. Paul has has told us who the strong one is in, in chapter 14. He says, one person believes he may eat anything, and the weak person eats only vegetables. Think about this for a second, because it's not what we think. When we think of strong, we think of the one with the most convictions, the most rules around their life, jumping through the most hoops. But Paul says, no, the one who is strong is the one who is fully aware of their freedom in Jesus Christ. But in light of that freedom, they use it to serve one another. Wasn't that what chapter 14 was about? Yes, we are free in Christ, but there may be a weaker brother who if we exercise our freedom around them, we may stumble them. So even though we're free in Christ, as we have been told, don't use that freedom then to return to sin, but use it as an opportunity to love one another. But that is the one who is strong, the one who is confident in their freedom in Christ. They're confident in their, that they are loved. And God's love is not conditional. And God's love doesn't change with our behaviors. And he's not like us. His love does not have strings attached. He is not waiting for us to fail and so he can cast us aside. God's love is deep. And it's wide. And it's unconditional. And it's not about us, it's about him. And so Paul says, that's the strong one. The one who rests in the love of Jesus Christ. Who isn't tossed and turned by their own emotions and feelings and their own feelings dictate how God feels about them. And as long as I'm performing my duty, then God loves me. But as soon as I get off track, then he's disappointed. Paul says, no, that's weak. But those of you who are strong, bear with your brother's weakness because we are all a work in progress. See, that's that's what Paul's dealing with in the early church in Rome. These Jewish converts are bringing in their traditions. Certain days are more holy than others. The Sabbath day is more holy than the other days. We don't eat meat sacrificed to idols. In fact, we only eat certain kinds of meat. There's clean meat and then there's unclean meat. Isn't that something that that God had to work out in Peter? You guys remember our study in the book of Acts when God let down this blanket full of uh, bacon and he's like, Peter, eat. And Peter's like, nope, this is a test. I will not eat anything that is unclean. And what did the Lord say? No. Do not call anything unclean that I have called clean. And he was taking Peter beyond just his diet. He was going to bring him to the house of a butcher who deals with dead meat all the time. He would would have been considered an unclean man. And Paul was going to go and stay with him or Peter Peter had to lay down this legalistic thinking so that he could be effective in the kingdom of God and that's what Paul is dealing with here in Romans 
You may have brothers who think one day is holier than another. You may have a brother who despises eating a certain kind of meat. You may have a brother who is bound by legalism, but be patient. Accept him and his convictions. Because even though he may be jumping through a hoop, each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. If he's doing it unto the Lord, let the Lord work that out in his life. See, there's something evil within us that deeply desires everyone to see things our way. We want to be right. So you may be someone with a certain conviction, and someone may not have that same conviction, but we are called to be patient. Let's, let's again, bring some balance to this. Look at verse 2. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, leading to edification. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. So Paul expands this a little bit, and he says, let each of us serve. That's that word please means serve one another to build them up. And then he repeats it, leading to edification. Guys, do we live for the good of others? That's what Paul is talking about. That's the mindset that he's trying to draw this church into. Do we live for the good of others or do we live for ourselves? Because the mind that Christ has in him is to lay down his life for others. That's why Paul says repeatedly, put this mind in you, the same mind that's in Jesus Christ. Clothe yourself in Christ. Do we live to build one another up or are we looking at others and wondering what they have to offer us? And if they don't have anything to offer, then we cut them out of our lives. That's the way of the world, isn't it? If you can't handle me at my worst, then you don't deserve me at my best. It's ridiculous. It's not the example that Jesus has given us. So he says, let each of us please his neighbor for his good. Who's your neighbor? Who's your neighbor? Well, Jesus answered that very question, didn't he? You may remember a scribe came to him really wanting to test him. And he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, well, you know the law. What does the law say? And he said, well, to love the Lord your God with all your soul, mind, and strength. And to love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said, well, you've said rightly. But then the scribe seeking, seeking, for a, looking for a loophole, if you will, to justify himself. He said, well, who's my neighbor then? And then Jesus goes into the story of the Good Samaritan. And in that story, who is the good neighbor? It's the Good Samaritan that saw a man in need, a solemn man who was beaten within an inch of his life and said, no, I need to, I need to get involved. I need to meet that man's needs. I need, to, I need to help him. I need to build him up. Anyone we come in contact with on a daily basis who has deep needs, that's our neighbor. That word neighbor literally means everyone we come alongside of. And what are we to do to build them up? Literally, it means to build a house. How many of you have ever had to build your own house? Some of you. It's not an easy process. Some of you are in construction. It takes time. 
It takes planning. It takes effort. It takes energy. We live in a culture now where we just say, okay, I want a house, and we go out and buy it. We're not responsible for building it ourselves. But building is not easy. It takes resources that we often do not want to invest. When we're talking about building into one another, guys, it takes time. It takes effort. It takes energy. But when we truly understand the gospel and what Jesus has done for us, it becomes a reasonable response to all that Jesus has done for us. Paul says, it's written that the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. If Jesus died for us, can we not lay down our lives for one another? That's the heart here. Live for one another. Sacrifice your wants and your desires and for one another's good. And so this is where, again, I, I've mentioned balance. I want to bring balance in here. Does, ba- does living for one another's good mean pandering to one another? We had a lady come in a few years ago. And she was irate with us because we had a water fountain within the church in the back. There was something in her mind, and she, spoke, she brought us to a vague scripture out of context and said that water fountain doesn't belong in the church. Are we responsible then, because that's her conviction, should we have ripped it out of the wall? If, if we're going to take Paul's words, literally, do we rip it out of the wall? Guys, again, here's the balance. Somewhere down the line we begin to enable people. Somewhere down the line, if we allow people to be offended over absolutely everything, is it to their good that we continue to placate them? Do we continue to pander to them? If someone is offended about everything, at some point it is to their good to stop and say, brother, sister, Do you understand the freedom that you have in Christ? Let each of us please his neighbor for his good leading to edification. There's a difference between patience and pandering. Paul is not saying you should enable a judgmental spirit or that you should enable controlling personalities. That would not be for their good. This is about personal conviction. And guys, I'm not saying this is easy. It takes wisdom and it takes discernment and it takes time to tell the difference sometimes. But here's the big picture. We can remain unified and have different convictions. That's the big picture here. We, can f- we can't fall into the trap of cutting people off just because they don't think exactly likes us. Guy, like us. That creates church communities where everybody looks the same and they talk the same and they think the same. And we do not want that here. Where's the fun in that? We need to learn to disagree well because we are all works in progress but where things are essential we cannot budge look at verse 4 Paul says whatever things were written before were written for our learning that we through the patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope if you have a pen if you're a note taker you might want to underline these words through the patience and comfort of the what? Scriptures, we might have hope. Now we now may the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded towards one another according to Christ Jesus, that you may with one mind and one mouth glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. What is our unity all about? What's at stake here? This isn't just a passing idea that, hey, it would be nice if we were all on the same page. It would be nice if we showed love to one another. It's kind of the Christian thing to do. No, this is what's at stake. The glory of God that you may be like-minded toward one another according to Jesus Christ that you may with one mind and one mouth glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus 
Christ. Therefore receive one another just as Christ also received us to the glory of God. So I'm going to ask you to take an inventory. How are your personal relationships doing? Are they marked by conflict? Are you jumping from one church to another because people just simply can't see things your way, which are obviously the right way? When you look at your relationships, are you leaving a path of destruction? (laughs) Who's the common denominator? And guys, I'm not trying to come down too hard on anyone, but it's this important. Because we all agreed, hey, the American church does not look like Jesus the way that it should. We group together with people that look like us and talk like us and make us feel comfortable, but we're not willing to wrestle with people that think a little bit differently than us. Because that's where there's growth. But the fact that God can take us in our diversity and bring us together as one body, it tells his story. Again, and I'm not trying to say Calvary Central is the best, even though it is, but I'm not trying to say that. One thing I am so grateful for is how different we all are. So many different upbringings and different ways of seeing things, different races and different socioeconomic statuses. We all drive from different sides of town and we come together and we do our best to love one another and serve one another. That's not because we're digging deep. It's because of the Holy Spirit living in us. What other situation would we all be here together? What, what other thing would bring a group like us together, not just to be entertained, but to spend time with one another? It's the Holy Spirit of God that lives within us. There's one Spirit, one God, one Savior, Jesus Christ. And when we can walk in that unity, we are with one mind and one mouth, we are telling the story of God. That word glorify, it's a Christianese word, isn't it? What does it mean to glorify God? Glory means weight. It's substance. It's all that God is. And so when we glorify him, we're not giving him something that he doesn't already have. We are exposing to the world who he already is. It's a world that's blind, right? It's a world that's walking in darkness. And for whatever reason, God said, I want to display myself to the world and I want to do it through my church, the bride of Christ. That's why we exist. That's why we live and move and have our being in this world. And we do that when we are united. But look at what else Paul says there. It's a so encouraging. He says God's word provides perspective, doesn't he? So if you're struggling, if you're struggling, struggling relationally, usually if you're struggling relationally with people here on earth, you're probably struggling relationally with God. That's one thing I've found in my personal life. If relationships just don't seem to make sense, if we're becoming short with people, if we're becoming judgmental, if we don't exercise the same grace that has been shown us, it's usually because our relationship with the Lord is struggling. So Paul brings us back to the importance of the scriptures because one thing the scriptures give us is what? Patience. Why why does God's word bring patience? Well, if you study God's word, you know how the story ends, don't you? If you study God's word, you know that God is doing a work in believers and he's not done yet. If you study God's word, you realize that we have this already not yet endurance. Do you know what I mean by that? That this is not our home. This is not how the story ends. We see the culture turning against God and shaming Christianity, and we can be patient with the culture and love them even though they are doing evil to us because we know how the story ends. 
that we are just passing through. And we can be patient because Jesus is patient with us. And we see that in his word. We don't see that any place else. Already not yet endurance. What else does God's word bring? Patience and what? Comfort. When my wife and I first met, we were attending a church, and there's a lot of people at that church that love Jesus, and they're doing their best to follow Jesus, but the Word of God, teaching and understanding the Word of God was not the priority. The priority essentially was getting people in the door, and the ends justified the means. As long as you could get people in and fill the seats, they felt like they were doing a good job, but the Word of God was solely missing. And we would come and we would visit here. My parents were attending here. And every time I came here, my wife and I, we would leave. And the best way I could describe our experience was it's like we were walking in a desert and someone gave us a cold glass of water to drink. It was just refreshing. Now our church, our worship was like You've heard me talk about it before, lasers and smoke, and it was, it was an emotional experience for sure. We had paid musicians. Um, they weren't Christians, but they were phenomenal musicians. And then we'd come here, and guys, I'm not saying our worship isn't awesome here. I'm just saying we don't have any lasers. We don't have the smoke. Our priority is not necessarily an emotional experience is what I'm saying. You know that. You're just giving me a hard time. We come together when we worship to corporately sing the truth of God and who he is, right? And we do it to the best of our ability. And I'm not trying to, again, make it an us and then. Any church that places a high priority on teaching God's word in a way that is understandable, I promise you experience the same thing. We don't have a monopoly on that. But it brings comfort when you remind people of the truth of God's word. And that's what my wife and I were experiencing. We just couldn't put words to it. Every time we came and we sat and we heard God's word taught verse by verse, we were reminded of the truth in a world full of lies. We were reminded, and this is how God's word brings comfort. We've been studying 2 Samuel, and one thing we've seen is that it's God who puts kings on the throne and pulls them off. It's God who is sovereign over governments and kingdoms. That brings me comfort. When you look at the world and you think everything's out of control, it's not. God will use evil for his good. That brings comfort to me. It brings comfort to me when I see how imperfect the disciples were. When I see how imperfect David was. It brings comfort to me to know that God is patient with me. And to avoid God's word and not teach the fullness of God's word is to rob and starve the church of God's comfort. We need to be reminded of the truth because we need the comfort of the scriptures. God is in control. And finally, patience and comfort of the scriptures that we might have what? Hope. What is hope? I hope we go to in and out after church. Is that hope? I, I, hope, I hope I get a car when I turn 16. Keep hoping, Luke. Keep hoping. <laughs> it's not like may, maybe, just maybe, this will happen. I don't know if it will. That's not the hope. That's not biblical hope. Biblical hope is a confidence in a coming good. Biblical hope is certainty of a coming good, a better good. And it has immediate implications. So I, I got I to pause on this for a second because I, I see it. All the time, and I see it most at memorial services. There is a type of bittersweetness that comes at memorial services 
where the family, they know Jesus. They have a relationship with him. And they know that their loved one is gone now here for a moment, but one day they will see them again. That's hope. I've also been a part of memorial services where that hope is not there. And it's wailing. It's darkness. It's questioning everything. It's I can't go on without them. I can't take one step in front of the other because they were my everything. All my hope was in them, and now they're gone. What am I supposed to do? And I use that example because the hope that we have in Jesus, it gives us a certainty of a coming good that gives us immediate, immediate implications. It gives us peace. It gives us calm. That's why Paul writes, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Why, could, why did Peter, after he had been beaten and thrown in prison, why was he singing hymns? Why was he praising God? I mean, we question everything. If Starbucks gets our order wrong, this day's over, where's God in all of this? They forgot my ranch. How am I supposed to dip my fries in anything? That's, we are so spoiled. And man, I, I, I really believe that God is training the church to have a little bit of a backbone. To look at, hey, this is, this is just a taste of what it means to feel just a bit of persecution. And if you can't handle this, I don't know how you're going to handle what's to come. But Peter sang hymns because he had hope. He knew, he knew his life didn't end in prison. Even if his life did end in prison, he knew that wasn't the end of his life. It was only the beginning of what was to come. That's the hope that the scriptures provide. And then Paul here he begins to pray in verse 5. He says, Lord, help them remain unified. It's kind of echoing Jesus' prayer in the garden. Lord, you and I are one. Help them to be one. Isn't that interesting that that's what Jesus was praying for before he went to the cross? Lord, there's nothing I do, Jesus said, that is contrary to your will. I have come to do the will of my Father. When the disciples came to Jesus and said, you haven't eaten anything, you need to eat something. What did Jesus say? My food is to do the will of the Father. So when he's in the garden saying, Lord, you and I are one. Lord, help them to be one as you and I are one. There should be immense weight to those words. If that's what Jesus desires and he's the head of the church and we are his body, shouldn't we want what he wants? We should not take relational strife lightly. If there is someone that has done you wrong in the body here at Calvary Central, I'm going to make this personal, let's make that right. If you come to church unable to talk to somebody because there's a wall of defense up because somebody said something or didn't say something and you have allowed that to go on, do everything in your power to make that right. I'm not saying you have to be best buddies and go arm in arm skipping through a field of flowers, but what I am saying is we know when there's a, this thing that's just not right between us and someone else. And it is not God's will that we allow that to continue for his glory. It needs to be resolved. And that's what Paul prays for. He says that, may the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded toward one another. Because it's his work, right? Ultimately, when it comes down to it, it has to be his work. So he begs that the Lord would grant this to the church in Rome according to Christ Jesus, that you may be one mind 
and one mouth, that you may glorify the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's why unity is so important. It brings glory to God. Let me give you another verse. Ephesians 4, verse 1. Paul writes now to the church in Ephesus here, Therefore, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, I beg you, I beseech you, to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. Okay, so what does it look like to walk worthy of the calling in which we were called? He says, with all lowliness and gentleness, long-suffering, which is patience per- patiently persevering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Is that what we display to the world, that we all serve the same God? There's one Spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all, and he's above all. And when we walk in that manner, we tell the story of who God is. Let me ask a strange question. Why did Jesus save you? Why did he save you? Because he loved you? True? Because he wants to bless you? He does. Because he wants you to have your best life now? Well, it depends on how you define that. But let me share with you the primary reason you've been saved. To glorify God. Psalm 106, verse 6, we have sinned with our fathers, we have committed iniquity, we have done wickedly. Our fathers in Egypt did not understand your wonders, they did not remember the multitude of your mercies, but they rebelled by the sea, the Red Sea. Nevertheless, he saved them for his namesake, that he might make his mighty power known. And you may say, well, that's Old Testament stuff. Well, here's what Paul says in Philippians 2, verse 8, and being found in appearance as as a man... Jesus humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the, on the cross. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every other name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Romans 3.25, whom God set forth as a propitiation, as a payment by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness. Because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. God's goodness is on full display when he saves sinners. That's why he saved us, to make his name known. And if we can all agree with this, and I know we're out of time. If we can all acknowledge that we are saved sinners. And that we are here, not because of anything we've done, but because of what Jesus has done for us. Guys, we are on an even playing field. He's working in all of us. And we're all at different places in our walks. But let's live for one another. 
Let's build one another up. Let's look to meet the needs of one another. And if we have different ideas and different convictions, that's one thing. But let's come together under the things that we know are right and true. So that God's name may be exalted in this little neighborhood on 27th Avenue in Glendale that we meet on. Let's have the worship team come forward. God, we, um, we need your help. We wake up in the morning wanting to serve ourselves. We wake up thinking about ourselves. And you haven't simply told us to love one another as we love ourselves. That's the old commandment. The new commandment is to love one another as you've loved us. That's an impossible bar without your spirit. So we know that we are unified not when we try to be like one another, but we are unified as we, we seek you. Because if we share your mind, we will be like-minded in the areas that really matter. So I pray for the legalists among us, those who have been weighed down by the burdens that they've placed on themselves, not, the, not anything that you've guided them into gently, you say, take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So I pray that you'd bring them into freedom, not freedom to turn back to sin, but freedom to just live and love you and love those around them. I pray for those who are living a life of license, that you're calling them to a, a better life, a life where um, your word enriches their relationships that they wouldn't be in bondage to sin the irony that we think our liberty leads us into a life of freedom when in reality when we go outside your direction we find ourselves in the same chains that you delivered us from so for the legalist and for the person who is living in license we find that we, they are both in chains but your truth sets us free so that's our prayer this morning. We pray for unity and we pray for freedom. We know that's only possible by your spirit. Lord, we love you and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.